Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them. Hosted by Dr. Melody Musgrove and Dr. Kathy Grace with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. Hello again, everybody. This is Kathy Grace along with Melody Musgrove. We're so glad that you have joined us today. We're very fortunate to have Dr. David Hill. He's an adjunct assistant professor of pediatrics at the UNC School of Medicine, a pediatric hospitalist at Goldsboro, North Carolina, and a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics Council Management Committee. He is the immediate past chair of the AAP Council on Communication and Media, associate medical editor of Caring for Your Baby and Young Child, birth to age five, author of Dad to Dad, Parenting Like a Pro, and co-author of Co-Parenting Through Separation and Divorce, Putting Your Child First. And he also co-hosts the AAP's podcast, Pediatrics on Call. So, Dr. Hill, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm so honored you'd have me. Thank you. Feel free to talk with us as much as you would on any of the topics that we come up and discuss. It's not very often that we're fortunate enough to have somebody with your credentials to be able to spend time with us. And it is so timely given the situation with the pandemic that has been on everyone's mind this past year. And so I'd like to just start with you telling us a little bit about the current recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics regarding COVID in young children. You bet. So right now we're really focused on trying to get kids back into classrooms uh, as we've learned more about how the pandemic spreads, who it affects, who it's less likely to affect, and also some of those sort of downstream effects in terms of education, mental health, housing, nutrition, etc. We're really finding that there is no substitute for safe, healthy schools for kids. And we're also finding that if we take the right precautions, we really should be able to get kids back into classrooms. So I think that's everybody's focus right now. There are so many issues that schools address other than education. Of course, education is the the primary goal. But as we're aware, children also frequently rely on schools for healthy meals. We have a lot of children in the reduced or free lunch program. And in many cases, that's the only really healthy balanced meal these kids get in a day. If they're fortunate, they may get breakfast and lunch in some places. And there have certainly been districts I know around me that are working on picking up, you know, box lunches at locations. But even then, when parents have transportation issues uh, saying, hey, we've got, you know, we've got some food over here, come and get it. Uh, well, that's great if you can come and get it. But if you can't get there, it's still an issue. Whereas, you know, when kids get bused to school, they know they're going to make it. They know when they get there, there's going to be breakfast, there's going to be lunch, that's at least two decent meals a day. There is an enormous network of school health that we as pediatricians rely on to make sure that kids' chronic needs are met, to make sure that needs are identified. We work so closely with our school nurses, and uh, they both have a key role in managing chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, seizure disorders, and also in identifying kids who may not have been identified before, either with medical illness or with psychiatric problems or 
tragically with abuse and neglect if teachers and nurses and administrators and coaches aren't seeing these children then they're not seeing some of the signs that these kids may need help. So for all these reasons, in addition to the obvious issue of education, we really do want to try and get kids back in schools. Now, what are we learning about how schools work with the transmission of COVID? Well, there are a couple of things that seem to be clear at this point. First of all, young children can and do get very sick. I have taken care of a couple of young children myself who got very sick with COVID. But on average, younger children are much less likely to get very sick when they contract COVID. It also seems like the direction of transmission is more from adults to kids than it is from kids to adults. This week, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released a new report on school outbreaks in Georgia near, near y'all and me. And those outbreaks seem to stem more from the adults in the school than they did from the children at the school. Now, as kids get older, things change a little bit. So over age 10, under age 10 seem to be two different scenarios. And of course, that's not just this bright dividing line, right? So an 18-year-old is not the same as a 16-year-old. It's not the same as a 13-year-old. But the older kids get, the better they should be able to comply as well with our recommendations. So we know that face masks are very, very effective at preventing the spread. They work better if you keep them on, if you put them on right. If they're a cloth mask, you can wear two of them. If they're a cloth or surgical mask, you can adjust the band so that the fit is tighter. Uh, cloth mask you want to wash regularly. Uh, I have uh, the great fortune of having a steady supply of N95 masks because of my hospital work. But any mask is better than no mask, and a good mask is better than a bad mask. And, you know, so teenagers and older children and even younger children are very capable of complying with mask mandates. They all know how to wash their hands. It's one of the first things we teach them when they come to school. We can put desks farther apart. Uh, we can certainly vaccinate teachers, and at this point, uh, especially older teachers, more vulnerable teachers, should be finding that their access to the vaccines is becoming easier. I know it varies by where you are, sometimes rather dramatically. Not everybody who needs a vaccine can get it, but at least where I am in North Carolina, we're, we're now seeing pretty good penetration of effective vaccines into the populations that need them the most. Obviously, there are still some disparities. Uh, in those populations, it's still uh, a little slower getting to some of the impoverished areas, getting to rural areas, getting to uh, minority populations. I know that states around the country are working on that. And honestly, I think we can we can look to West Virginia, which is a state not known necessarily for its robust public health and education system. And wow, have they figured this thing out. So I think we can look to places where best practices, despite being resource limited, are really working well and see what they're doing. Uh, you know, South Dakota had a, a massive spike due to largely ignoring some of the public health guidance. And then South Dakota came back and, and sort of figured it out. And they're now doing a really good job of reducing transmission. So, you know, if each of us can do what we know we need to do to reduce community transmission, then the kids in our communities should be able to get back 
to all those advantages of going to school, which are, of course, education, but mental health, food, safety, physical health, all those things. And that's kind of where we're pointing right now. Well, I know there was some uh, discussion and concern about whether or not children could be asymptomatic and that they may not show any signs of COVID, but yet they could be carriers or could, as you say, maybe provide uh, a source of concern for the teachers. Well, I'm so glad that you brought that up because children are more likely than adults to be asymptomatic. And yet even among adults, uh, asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic people, people who caught the disease and don't know that they caught it yet, maybe they're on day two or day three, or maybe they're never going to get symptoms, play a huge role in transmitting coronavirus. And this is one of the things that has made it so difficult. I mean, I really think of this virus, I, I'd like to say organism, but a virus is not exactly an organism. It's it's kind of under an organism. It's, it's a particle that can propagate itself in the right host, has sort of perfectly evolved to take advantage of the chinks in our mental armor. So, you know, we're pretty good at avoiding people who look sick. If you've got spots all over or you're coughing up blood or, you know, you look pale and sweaty, I'm going to step back a few feet and be like, whoa, what's wrong with you? You don't look good. Right. But this is a virus that passes very, very easily from people who look great. They look normal. They feel great. And it's so hard for us to wrap our heads around the idea that somebody who looks good and feels good and doesn't look scary in any way could still make us life-threateningly sick. The other thing about this organism that really just wreaks havoc with common sense is this time delay between when you're exposed to it and when you get sick. You know, flu is a wonderful counterexample. A lot of people like to compare coronavirus and flu because because flu is a thing that we're all accustomed to. And if you get the flu, you, A, are very likely to be symptomatic, and B, you're very likely to put yourself to bed within 24 to 48 hours of getting the flu. So you get the flu, you feel awful, you don't go to work, you don't go to school, you call in sick, you lie under the covers for a few days, you don't go back out until you feel better. You get coronavirus, you party for four days, seven days while you're infectious, while you're capable of making other people sick. You don't know it. You don't know it because you feel great. And this disease that healthy looking people can pass to each other and where our actions don't have consequences until four or seven or even 10 days later, just it just defies common sense. We're just not good at dealing with a challenge that presents in this way. We are just really good at running from bears and, and mountain lions, and we're really, really bad at running for something that already has you and you don't know it for a week, you know? Well, I know that there are different communities, as you mentioned, who have done better jobs than others in terms of a plan that they actually implemented and that they have seen uh, drastic decreases. With regard to school startups or returning to school, does the overall health of the community weigh into decisions that school board members would make or administrators would make 
when they have to make some of these decisions, particularly if the federal government and some of the other groups that are really helping to fund public schools uh, have said, we've got to see some kind of uh, attendance in the public schools, whether or not it's before this school year is over, but certainly by the time school starts in September. And part B is that I've noticed, I've heard on the news that the new strain of COVID that's coming in from uh, UK may be easier for us to catch, but that the vaccine is also going to be able to combat it. So that if we've been vaccinated with what we currently have in this country, that we should be okay. But with this new strain, it could be even more contagious. Right, right. So (laughs) you hit on something really important there, which is that community levels of disease have an enormous effect on just the math of whether you're going to get it or not, right? If I walk out into the community and one in 500 people have coronavirus or or could give it to me, then I'm feeling pretty good, right? I have to find 500 people to interact with before I find one who might make me sick. Whereas if I walk out into the community and one in every five people could give me coronavirus, you know, I get in one elevator and I'm done, right? By the time I I just went to the grocery store today, I am, by the way, fully vaccinated and still wear my mask. But, you know, in a high transmission community, I don't get through the produce aisle before I've passed somebody who could infect me. Whereas when we get the community levels down, I might make it through the whole store and not pass a single infectious person. And that is so critical. So, you know, I hear people complain, kids need to be back in school. Businesses need to be open. Absolutely. But if you're complaining about that elbow to elbow with somebody at a bar, you're not doing your part. (laughs) You're you're making it worse, right? So uh, we have to continue to take these precautions that we have learned to take and get those community rates low. And if we do, hey, it's it may not look exactly like 2019, but it's going to look a lot closer than it does now. We can do so much. Now, in the second part, you brought up these viral variants and viruses change all the time. I don't know, you know. I don't know if uh, as a teacher, you ever made a photocopy and then you lost the original. So you had to photocopy the the photocopy and and then you lost that one. And, you know, by the time you get down to that third generation photocopy, it may not look a lot like the original. And this is how viruses replicate, but they do it billions and billions of times over. And so, you know, when you've got billions of viruses circulating through hundreds of millions of people, they're going to come up with new and different ways to do what they do. And most of those ways won't work. But if one sticks, well, that's how evolution works. If one makes it a better virus at propagating, then that starts to outcompete the other viruses. And suddenly that's the one. We have news just today of a novel virus being identified in California, and they're still kind of working on what the nature of that is. There is the British B117 variant that you mentioned, which is one of the first uh, successful variants. There's one from South Africa. There's one from Brazil. uh, And there will be more because that's how viruses work. I want to come back to what we just said. The fewer viruses are replicating, the less they can evolve. So, again, you know, keep your distance, wear your mask, wash your hands. Don't go anywhere you don't really need to go till we get this thing under control, for gosh sake. That will reduce the opportunities for this thing to find new ways to come get us. 
it's also the reason that we can't get too relaxed just yet. I am fully vaccinated. My wife is fully vaccinated because we, you know, have a lot of friends in the medical community. Many of them are fully vaccinated. We are still not holding big parties. We are still not going through the world without masks because I don't know what the next variant is going to do. I, I, so far, the vaccines seem to be working against these variants. But will there be one that we discover next week where the vaccine's not as good? We have to sort of tweak the vaccine and I have to go back for booster? Could be. So it's not time to just let down all your guard and and party, even if you have had coronavirus and recovered from it. If you have had the COVID vaccine, wonderful. That is fantastic. But until we really get community transmission rates down to the floor, we're going to want to continue to take some precautions. I'm already in conversation with educators about concerns when school starts in the fall because of the fact that children have had such an unusual year and how behavior or how anxiety, how some of the uh, in young children, the uh, disruptive behaviors could materialize. What would be your thoughts toward how parents can reduce the stress as far as children during the summer uh, preparing for school entry? Or what could be done from the standpoint before children leave school this spring from a teacher standpoint or a school administrator standpoint so that when children enter school in the fall, how some of these concerns can be eliminated simply because of the fact that uh, we've done our homework prior to school entry and giving children a little more stability in terms of how they can expect the school year to go. Absolutely. That is such a big and important conversation. Full disclosure, my wife is a pediatric PA who works exclusively now in pediatric psychiatric care. And so this is very much part of our lives. I staff a small community hospital in Goldsboro, North Carolina. And when I look at the census in the emergency department, it seems like there's always at least one child or teenager down there with a mental health concern, if not a couple. And just any given time, I pull that census up. And this is not a giant ED. This is like 33 beds and, you know, may have two to five kids in it at any given moment. Uh, and the data bear these observations out. It's not just, you know, what I'm seeing in my corner of the world. There is some pretty good signal out there in the data that kids are having a more difficult time. And I don't think that should surprise us because, you know, we all feel better when we feel like we are doing a meaningful job. When we're doing the thing we're put on earth to do, we feel good about it. Kids are put on earth to learn, to play, to interact with each other, to figure out how to engage with other children and the world around them. And this pandemic has put a real damper on their ability to do those things. It's been so difficult. And there are things that we can do as parents to help these kids out. Again, getting them back in school, I think, is going to be a, an enormous help. But one of the interesting studies that came out, I, I speak a lot and think a lot about the interaction between kids and electronic media. And electronic media have been blamed for a lot of mental health problems in kids, not always without reason, but sometimes. And a study came out by a researcher, Dr. Gene Twenge, who is one of the people who's been the most critical of social media and child mental health. 
But she looked at how things were going for kids in July and found that kids, A, whose families spent more time with them, were actually very well protected against increased depression and anxiety. So if the result of this pandemic is that you've had to be home more or you haven't been able to do some things outside the house, it might be that that's giving you more time to talk to your kids, to play ball with them, to, to go on hikes, to, you know, just do a little backyard safari and see what's crawling around back there or to, you know, read or just hear about their imaginations. Right. So the time that we spend with our kids as a family, listening to them, exploring their interests, sharing stories is so important at keeping them healthy. Uh, I have teenagers and, and young adult kids, and their job is to explore peer relationships and finding ways that they can do that without making, you know, putting themselves at risk for coronavirus is really important. So their online lives may be really important to them in finding a, a healthy, good way for them to stay connected with their friends online can be helpful uh if they can get together you know do stuff outside the weather here <laughs> has been miserable not as bad as it has been there uh, not as bad as it as it has been in texas where i spent eight years of my life but it's been pretty miserable but golly we're we're, we're coming in for some good weather great time to walk and hike and run and bike or just sit around a campfire and talk so there are great opportunities for kids to get together in safe places, in safe ways, not, you know, locked up together in a small room, breathing on each other, but in ways that are safe from a COVID standpoint and really relate and talk and share experiences. The other thing that we want to be is very perceptive to our own kids' moods. So if you notice that your child or a child you know is suddenly just different, they're down, they're not interested in what they're usually interested in, we want to really explore that and see if we can get them help. Uh, sometimes they're going to need some help. There are some basic things that help keep kids on track in terms of mental health. Just having a routine, and this has been very disruptive for a lot of people's routines, but if they have a time to wake up, a time to go to bed, a time to eat, a time to exercise, that's the same from day to day, that's tremendously helpful. Sleep is completely tied into mental health. Kids who are not sleeping well are very likely to have problems with anxiety, depression, ADHD, behavior. So really making sure that the screens are off at night, that there's an appropriate bedtime, that kids are getting eight, nine, 10 hours of sleep, depending on how old they are, maybe even more if they're very young. And that sleep is, you know, not disrupted by noise and light and TV is really, really important. Making sure they got healthy food, exercise, our mental health cannot be extracted from our physical health. So getting outside and doing something that gets a heart rate up, playing is what kids call it, but it is exercise that could not be more important. And just looking at our lives today and saying, okay, I had a structure and now I have to change that structure. How can I rebuild to protect family time, protect exercise, protect sleep, protect a healthy diet, protect time to relate to each other? Those are things that we can do even in the face of this pandemic to improve our kids' chances at having really good mental health. Well, you mentioned things from a standpoint that we can do for children. Two things that you could recommend for parents to do for themselves. 
Absolutely. This is so important. First of all, make sure that you continue to connect with your support network. You know, people used to wander over to each other's houses, may not do that anymore. People who were going to church may be going to church in the parking lot or going to church online. Uh, people who had clubs and sports leagues and got, you know, to talk around the water cooler at work uh, may not even be able to, to eat lunch within earshot of each other anymore. And that can be very disruptive for us, we have to make time to talk to our life partners and to our friends. I'm finding one of the surprising fortunate pieces of this pandemic is that I've opened up the idea of seeking out friends to seeking out friends who live in other parts of the country. I had a lovely hour plus talk with one of my best friends from college who lives many states away from me yesterday. And I've tried to make a habit of connecting to these friends that I don't get to see anymore because I don't travel. I don't go anywhere. I used to see them at meetings, you know, we'd go out of town for a vacation, you know, visit with somebody we knew, not doing it. And really reaching out and doing that. And the other thing I, I just talked about the importance of sleep and exercise and healthy diet and family connection for kids. Same for adults. Get your sleep. Eat something healthy and go do something to move your body. You don't have to go run a triathlon. You don't have to go spend an hour at the gym and pump a bunch of iron. Just walk, move. Anything is better than nothing. And take a moment and be thankful for one thing in your life. And I know it's really easy for me to say for a position of privilege, like, oh, you have so much to be thankful for. But you can always find one thing. Some days it's just one wildflower in the backyard for me. Some days it's just one bird that flies over. I'm like, you know, that's a really cool bird. Find the thing, whatever it is, the sound of the milk in your breakfast cereal, and just be like, you know what? That's really nice. I really like that. And that that habit of noticing and of gratitude takes our minds off of what we don't have, what we're not doing, and gives us a moment to just be where we are. And that is tremendous for our health. If there was one thing that you would like to leave us with that, you know, is of your design and not in response to my questions from your experiences, prior to and now during the pandemic, what would you want to share with us? You know, to me, I think the overarching lesson of this challenge is the power of community, of neighbors helping each other out, of entire towns and counties and states helping each other out. If there's an earthquake or a flood or a wildfire, we all know what to do. Right. We have hurricanes here where I live. And after a hurricane, everybody comes. It's like it kicked over an anthill. Everybody comes out with chainsaws and gloves and trucks. We get everything out of the road. We make sure everybody's got food and water. And, and you know, if they don't have a running generator, they, you know, we bring their stuff over to our house. If they're cold or too hot, we help them out. This this is like a an 18 month long hurricane right now. And instead of, you know, sawing down felled trees and running generators, we just have to wear masks and wash hands and stand a little farther apart and maybe forego some things that we like, like watching a game at a bar and instead get our kids back in school and make sure that our neighbors have what they need. And, uh, you know, we, we know how to do this. 
And we're good at this. And I'm heartened to see more and more people around me you know, catching on and doing it. And and at this moment, I can't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow, but right now we are reaping the rewards. The numbers are going down. People are getting less sick. The hospitals are starting to empty. And I just want to build on that until this hurricane is passed and all the roofs are patched back up and, you know, we can go back to something that looks like normal life. I think that we would all agree with normal life and the way that you've just described is probably a universal approach to how our communities can become more 2019-ish in terms of uh, the, the way people were interacting and engaging. Again, want to thank you so much for spending time with us today. And uh, also want to remind everybody that you do have some publications that we didn't even get to talk about uh, <laughs> from the other side of your life. That you Indeed. have uh, written books, Dad to Dad, Parenting Like a Pro, and co-authoring a book of co-parenting through separation and divorce, putting your children first. We may have you back on to talk about some of those challenges uh and I can just imagine now, again, through COVID and what all of that has added to with regard to co-parenting. But again, thank you again for being with us. Thank you so much. Your voice just takes me right home. So <laughs> I love it. Our Lit Bit today is a poem by Georgia Douglas Johnson, Your World, from PoetryFoundation.org. Your world is as big as you make it, I know, for I used to abide in the narrowest nest in a corner, my wings pressing close to my side. But I sighted the distant horizon where the skyline encircled the sea, and I throbbed with the burning desire to travel this immensity. I battered the cordons around me and cradled my wings on the breeze, then soared to the utmost reaches with rapture, with power, with ease." Your World by Georgia Douglas Johnson, PoetryFoundation.org. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. We're always interested in stories about children and those who care for them. If you'd like to share your story, email us at edsup at oldmiss.edu. Until next time, bye-bye. Ed's Up is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity. 